Well, from our perspective, there's nothing more important than salvation. I mean, nothing matters more than your eternal destiny. And this is why the Lord Jesus made the primary mission of the church, not social reform, but salvation. The church should be about evangelism, ministering the gospel of Jesus Christ. So given the importance of salvation and the emphasis on evangelism, and that said, I think some churches fall into the trap of treating a person's conversion as the finish line, not the starting line. Someone comes to believe in Jesus, let's say, and through the power of the gospel, they've been made a, a true follower of Christ. Amen. Then they enter a local church and it's like, they're treated like you know, mission accomplished. Now our work here is done. And the attention always shifts to a new seeker, someone new, ready to make a new decision for the Lord. But wait, I mean, what about this brand new baby believer? What's there for him? Doesn't he still need help? I mean, his race of faith has just begun. He needs discipleship. But a lot of churches don't address this. They're so focused on growing in breadth that they neglect growing in depth. So you may have a crop of new believers, but they're not fed, they're not watered, they're not fertilized, they're not helped, and the result is a stunted growth. This is how you get decade-old Christians who are still spiritual infants. Now, don't get me wrong, praise God for any church that takes evangelism seriously, but it has to be remembered that our mission is not to make converts, it's to make disciples. That's a lifelong work. Evangelism is just the precursor to the Great Commission. When someone actually believes, it's just the starting line of discipleship. Only then do they step up to the plate. The church is to come alongside then and teach them, disciple them to make sure they don't strike out. Christians need teaching on spiritual growth. They need to know how they're supposed to grow in the Lord, how they're supposed to run the Christian race and walk the walk, and churches need to give attention to it. And that's something we're going to do this morning. Get up your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. Now it starts in verses 1 through 11, and it's one of the clearest passages on salvation in all scripture. No joke, like don't sleep on Philippians 3. It's one of the the clearest passages on the nature of true salvation. Verses 1 through 6, Paul recounts his past as a Pharisee. I mean, he was top of the class, more religious, more zealous than anyone else. He kept the law perfectly. He piled up a heap of good works and religious deeds, thinking it'd be more than enough to justify him before God. And then Paul reflects here how he came to this sudden realization that all of his law-keeping and religiosity was good for nothing before God. It's kind of like this. It's kind of like you deciding to invest all of your money in Bitcoin, that new like digital cryptocurrency. So you tell your employer to pay you in Bitcoin. You convert all of your cash to Bitcoin. You start saving in Bitcoin. Ten years go by, your, your digital account is looking good. You've got a million dollars in Bitcoin, you think, it's time to buy a house. I can pay in full. Then you run into this problem that nobody accepts Bitcoin. It's not a single bank that recognizes Bitcoin as a real currency. No one's going to take your digital money. And suddenly you just realize you made a terrible mistake. I mean, you just spent a decade investing in a currency that no one accepts. I mean, you thought you were rich, but now you realize you're actually broke. You have nothing. And likewise, before God, Paul came to a realization that he just spent his whole life investing in the currency of works righteousness. Then his eyes were opened through Christ that God doesn't actually accept that currency, your works. It, it just has no value to him. And do you think like, trying to be a good person is enough to God? You know, go to church, do some religious deeds, like that's enough? I think again, God doesn't accept any of that as righteousness. Why not? Because from the get-go, we're already completely defiled in sin. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And because of that, all of our so-called righteous deeds are like filthy rags to him, Isaiah says. 
And so in reality, we produce nothing but deeds of unrighteousness. So the Apostle Paul came to this earth-shattering conclusion. He just wasted his whole life. And he was still utterly lost and bankrupt and guilty before God. But thankfully, in that same moment, the same moment of realization, he also came to realize the good news. The good news of Christ Jesus. What is that good news? The good news is that Jesus can give us all the righteousness we need to be accepted by God. And he gives it for free. It's a free gift. And first, Jesus takes all of our sin debt, the mess we made for ourselves, just wipes it clean through his death on the cross. Then he transfers his own account, his currency, perfect righteousness. He transfers that to our account. And only on account of this, that does God accept us. And this transaction of funds, spiritual funds, it's made through faith. Look at Philippians 3, 7 through 9. He says, whatever things were gained to me, his own righteousness, those things I've counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For whom I've suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. And how clear is that? All his righteous deeds, his badges of honor, they're like, Rubbish, that they're good for nothing to make one righteous before God. The only hope is to be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of your own, but he says that which it comes from God on the basis of faith. That's how salvation works. It's not salvation by works, it's by faith and his grace. If you don't know Christ, if you've been trying to get to God through some other way, it's time to abandon it. And stop wasting your time. Stop investing in fool's gold and just turn to Christ today. Receive his righteousness as a gift by faith. That's Philippians 3, 1 through 11. We're not going to look at that passage today. And we're looking at the passage that comes right after that. Philippians 3, 12 through 16. Because after speaking on salvation, Paul goes on to speak on sanctification. What comes next? How to live out this Christian life, after you've been granted this righteousness. And here Paul really clears things up on spiritual growth. You see, you might get the impression that Paul is saying he's arrived at spiritual perfection. Okay, so like we're perfectly righteous in Christ. I guess that means we're done. We're we're saved. That's the end of it. We can even do whatever we want because we're saved, right? We've arrived. There are actually people who believe that. Some in the Corinthian church were buying into this warped concept of spiritual perfection in Christ, taking it to mean like we've arrived, nothing more is needed to do here. Some reason that the mature believer in Christ is just beyond sinning. When you're saved, you, you don't even sin anymore. Others twisted this notion of perfectionism into a license to sin that, well, you can still sin, just doesn't matter. Corinth, if you didn't know, is not so far from Philippi. Whether there are some people in the Philippian church who likewise believe that, we don't know for sure. But either way here, this next passage, verses 12 through 16, Paul spent some time following up this teaching on salvation with some teaching on sanctification. After you come to faith in Christ, you receive his righteousness, which truly is all you need to be saved and reconciled to God. But still, like, what comes next? What, what changes? What doesn't change? How are we to live? How are we to grow? What are we supposed to do now? Further clarification is needed. Thankfully, we get that in this passage. So let's read it now. You can come to get an idea of it. Philippians three twelve through 16. You guys are going to say after that. Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect. But I press on, so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. 
Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let us, therefore, as as many as are perfect, have this attitude. And if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. However, let us keep living by the same standard to which we have attained. This passage is showcasing three necessities for running the Christian race. Verses 1 through 11 thoroughly cover what it means to come to Christ. That's the nature of true salvation. And in one sense, yes, your salvation is like a finish line. You are dead to sin. You are alive to God. You are reconciled and justified. Yeah, that's finished. But in another sense, your salvation is just the beginning line. It's the beginning of your discipleship. You're not put in a race. And we're told it's a race. You need to run well and you need to finish. You need to get all this stuff straight. But again, thankfully, we find some helpful teaching here on what it means to run, how we are to run. Let's explore these three necessities for running the Christian race and try and make sense of how we are to live. First, you need the right realization. You need the right realization. What realization are we talking about? Well, simply that, that you haven't arrived. You might be saved, but you haven't arrived. You're still in the race. Back in verse 12, he, he says, right after speaking of his own conversion, he says, not that I've already obtained it or I've already become perfect. And then in verse 13, brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. What's he talking about? Well, he starts off with this disclaimer and he's emphatically repeating himself that despite all he has in Christ and the real salvation he has in Christ, he has not yet arrived. Arrived at what? At that perfect Christ-likeness. Again, what's God's goal in saving us? God's purpose. As we read for scripture reading this morning, it's succinctly stated in Romans 8, 29. Those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. God's purpose in saving us is to make us like his son. At salvation, this becomes our life purpose as well, to be like Christ. What you have to realize is that your conversion marks the beginning of this purpose, not the end. Or in other words, though you may be a genuinely saved Christian, you've not arrived. Your race isn't over. It's just begun. You've yet to be perfected. This is true even for the Apostle Paul. Look how he describes this in three different ways using three different verbs. He says first in in verse 12, not that I've already obtained it. In the Greek, there's actually no object. So this is akin to him saying like, not that I've arrived. When it comes to obtaining Christ-likeness, he's not arrived there yet. Second, he says, not that I've already become perfect. This word for perfect means mature or complete. And, And something is complete when it's arrived at its intended goal. And so he's saying the same thing. He's not reached that goal of Christ-likeness. And thirdly, in verse 13, he says, Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. He's not saying he's not saved or that salvation itself is a process. It's not. But this concept of, of perfect Christ-likeness as a goal is something he's not reached yet. At this point, it's not hard to hear the strain in his voice. He's repeatedly declaring he's not achieved spiritual perfection. He's not attained the goal of perfect Christ-likeness. There's still a long way to go, and you likewise need to make the right realization. Hopefully, you realize how disastrous it would be for a Christian to think otherwise. Meaning to think like you're done, you've arrived, you don't need to grow. That's a huge error that would only lead to spiritual apathy unchecked sin, disaster. Just imagine a runner who miscounted his laps. He crosses the finish line thinking he's won. He slows down, starts waving to the crowd, takes like a a slow victory lap. 
Meanwhile, there's really one more lap to go, and he ends up dead last because everyone passes him. That's like the Christian who mistakenly thinks he's done. He's got nothing left to do, nowhere to go or to grow. But even without necessarily believing this, I think a lot of Christians act like this. They, they approach the Christian life like it's game over. You know, they gave their life to Jesus. You know, like back at camp, they asked Jesus into their heart. So they're saved, right? They're not going to go to hell when they die. All good. And so now they, they really have nothing more to worry about. They're, they're good to go. They're free to live as they please. And they treat believing in Jesus as just the finish line. And that's it. But the result is typically a life of spiritual apathy. In addition, there are actually some Christians who believe they truly reach a point of perfect sinlessness in this life. Not in the next life, but this life. Back in 1741, John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, he preached a sermon on Christian perfectionism from this text in Philippians 3. And even though Paul emphatically states he's not perfect in verse 12, Wesley reasoned from verse 15, there must be some sense in which we are perfect. He went on to teach that believers can attain a form of perfection, which he called entire sanctification, which included, quote, deliverance from inward as well as outward sin, end quote. Meaning, like, you don't even sin anymore. This entire sanctification came about as a work a second work of God's grace after salvation. And they teach by this, this second grace, a person can attain a state of sinlessness. This teaching was later picked up by the holiness movement, and then it later fell right in with the charismatic movement. They associated this second work of grace with a second baptism of the Holy Spirit. But such teaching can actually be quite dangerous. To tell a Christian that they're perfect, meaning they can't even sin anymore, it's like telling a soldier he's safe, even though he's still behind enemy lines and the war is still going on. The message communicates to Christians that they're not really in a race or a battle. It gives them a false sense of security against the very real enemy and ongoing enemy of sin. It's just the reality that as long as we live in this sin-cursed world, and as long as we live in these sin-cursed bodies, we're going to sin. We are still sinners. The difference is that now we are justified. We follow Jesus. We have the Spirit. Now we wrestle against sin, something we did not do before. But the Christian who thinks he's somehow exempt from battling sin is like the wrestler who's just given up. And how quickly will he be pinned by his opponent? Look, if you want to avoid all this confusion and get things right, you just need to understand the way in which we as Christians are perfect and the way in which we as Christians are not perfect. And it's a both end. How are we perfect? How are we not perfect? Well, in short, just remember this. We are perfect in position. We are not perfect in practice. Perfect in position, not perfect in practice. When you come to faith in Christ, God really does completely forgive you of all your sins. He really does declare you perfectly righteous. And from that moment on, God views you as righteous as Christ. That's your position. You might say your legal status before him. That's what it means to be justified. A term for that is justification. You might say positional sanctification. So, are you perfect in Christ right now? Well, in position, yes. There's nothing more we need to do to achieve or add to our salvation. It's finished. We're perfect in Christ and we'll eventually get to heaven. Be glorified. We're perfect in position, but we are not yet perfect in practice. And we're forgiven of all of our sin. We're justified. But in our daily lives, we still sin. We're still unrighteous in many ways. Why is that? Well, at salvation, our hearts are made new. You are given a new spirit, a new inner self, a new nature. But what doesn't change? Your outer man, your, your body, your, your physical nature is left untouched at salvation. 
So that means although we are new in heart, we still have what scripture calls the sinful flesh. And that is just by its fallen nature, just pumping out continually sinful desires. And when you yield to those sinful desires, they turn into sinful deeds. That's where sin comes from, even from Christians. That's why we still sin. The spirit is willing. The flesh is weak, sometimes very weak. And that's why we say that in another sense, we are not perfect. We're very much still not perfect. Now look, one day the flesh will be gone. And on that day, our redemption will be complete. The Lord will set us free from the body of this death and give us new glorified bodies. Our redemption will extend to our our outer nature, the physical nature forever. And that day, our every desire will be purified. And then we'll be truly sinless. Like the holy angels. Just think about the holy angels when they come to earth, for example. Even though this place is filled with sin and corruption and temptation, just by their nature, they never give in, right? That's their holy angels. They never sin. They never succumb to temptation. How is that? They're not robots. It's because by their nature, they have zero desire for sin. None at all. It repulses them. Some people today commit adultery, get drunk, steal, harm others, have evil speech. The list goes on. Why do they do that? Well, because a part of them wants to do it. And then they give in to that part, the flesh. But can you even imagine what it would be like to have absolutely zero desire in your heart to do wrong? Like truly, there's not a trace of an evil desire anywhere in you. We can't imagine that. That day is coming, but not in this life. Until then, there's this disconnect that God left. Where we're perfect in position, but not in practice. Why would God do this? Why leave us in such a state? I mean, yeah, he could have taken us straight to heaven after our conversion, perfected us with a new body, and and we're done. But you see, he's glorified where now, in this life still, we choose to deny the flesh and walk by the Spirit and being progressively shaped into Christ's image. And that now is, is his chief purpose for us and ours as well. That's what this race of faith is all about. We haven't arrived. We're not perfect in, in practice yet, but we're going to press on to grow in Christ-likeness. And over in Romans 6, 11 and 12, Paul puts it this way. He says, even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God, because you are. But then right after he says, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. See, positionally, we we really are dead to sin. We're alive to God. And so now, though, while we're still here, you have to live that way. Live it out. Work it out. The flesh remains, but let God's saving grace work itself out in your life to conform you to Christ's image. That's how you get these strong commands on holiness. Listen to two of them. Hebrews 12.14 commands us to Pursue the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. You have to pursue the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. 2 Corinthians 7.1 says, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. We have a call to strive to perfect holiness in the fear of God. Let me repeat a a helpful illustration I used uh, before. You're like a piece of marble. And at salvation, God quarries you. He cuts you out from the mountain. He brings you home to his yard and you're now his. He has saved you, delivered you, taken you. You've been set apart. You now belong to him. But you're still in rough shape. The image of Christ has only dimly been etched in you. You resemble him just a little, but over time, by a constant effort, everything that doesn't belong to the image of Christ is is chipped away, and you are shaped more and more into the image of Christ. 
We have a part to play in that. That we call progressive sanctification, our ongoing pursuit. And we are given a part to play in that effort. For now, though, we are in a race. We're still in a battle against sin in the flesh. We're not going to arrive in this life, but we still press on. Now, before we move on, you might be wondering, like, why, why should I bother pursuing an unattainable goal? Why should I bother you know, trying to grow in Christ-likeness? If I'm never going to get there, never going to be rid of the flesh, why run in a race you can't finish? Well, first, just because you'll never arrive doesn't mean you can't make genuine progress. And God is glorified by the progress you make. That's just the point here. We are seeking to glorify God in, in this pursuit. And second, just because you can't finish the race on your own doesn't mean you won't finish. And we're all going to die somewhere on the racetrack far away from the finish line, but the Lord will pick us up and carry us through and bring us back. He will ensure you're going to finish the race. And on that day, he'll make you fully like Christ. This is meant to encourage you just to keep going. And God is glorified just by your running. In a way, though, you don't really have a choice. I mean, you ever thought about that? The whole question, why should I pursue Christ-likeness? Doesn't even make sense. It's like asking, why should a child grow? That, that question doesn't make sense. We don't ask that question because it's irrelevant. Like a child doesn't have a choice. A child grows because it's alive. It's like a living child will just by nature grow. You don't have to convince a child to grow or reason with it to grow. It's just going to grow if it's alive. And so it goes with the true believer. If, if you're spiritually alive, you're, you're going to grow. No convincing is needed. If there's a Christian, though, you know who's not growing and you feel like you have to convince them to try and grow, it's like pulling teeth to get them to live and act like a Christian, there's a chance they're not even saved. Are they alive? Because if you're truly spiritually alive, you will grow, at least a little. This is all part of the right realization. Have you made this right realization? And have you realized, like even Paul, though you're justified, but in practice, you've not arrived spiritually. You're not perfectly like Christ yet. You've got a lifelong race in front of you. For some of you, it's just begun. Have you realized you're not perfect in practice and therefore you've got your work cut out for you to grow in Christlikeness, to pursue sanctification, to perfect holiness? The first necessity for running the Christian race is just to realize you're in a race. It's the right realization. Secondly comes the right response. You need the right response. Number two, you need the right response. Notice how after expressing the right realization, Paul moves on to the right response, which is what? It, verse 12, it's simply to press on, to just keep going. Look back at verse 12. He says, not that I've already obtained it or I've already become perfect, but he says, I press on. Look at that phrase, I press on. Again in verse 14, I press on. Basically, that's just the right response. You just press on. You, you keep going. This means to follow after, to keep up the chase, to pursue, in order to ob obtain. And it pictures a runner who's eagerly and aggressively trying to overtake another runner. That should be the picture of your pursuit of Christ. You realize that you haven't reached him yet, so you press on. But not like passively, passionately, energetically. Some spiritual sweat is required. You're running hard to grow. This becomes your life's mission. It requires some spiritual sweat. Like Paul says in Colossians 1.29, God supplies the power, but we are to labor and strive after him. It's not all that different from a key passage in Philippians, back in chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. He says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God who's at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God's at work in you. He will provide you the power you need to grow. You don't have that power, but he'll provide it. But you, in turn, are told to work out your salvation. 
doesn't say work for your salvation. Second, people are already saved by grace apart from works. But now that you're saved, we'll get to work. God works salvation into you. Now you need to work it out, live it out is what it means. I'll repeat another illustration I used a while ago. You're also kind of like a water wheel. You've been created to work for God. If you know a water wheel, the thing that, you know, goes in the river, turns around, you convert that energy to do a lot of useful things. Especially, you know, back in the day when we relied on river power, water wheel was maybe the most valuable thing you had on a farm or a lumber mill. You can accomplish a lot with a good water wheel. But that wheel has no power by itself. It can't do anything by itself. All of its power comes from the river. And once it's immersed in the river, it will just automatically get to work. Well, likewise, God saved you and made you like a water wheel. He made you to get to work and do work unto him, press on after Christ. You don't have any power to do that yourself, like the water wheel. But what you are called to do is immerse yourself in the river of God's power, which he made to flow through you in the Holy Spirit. That's why he gave us the Holy Spirit, to provide us all that power we need to grow and work. And so as you are immersed in the Spirit's power, you will just automatically work. You'll strive. You'll grow. You'll, you'll start spinning and moving. How do you do that? What does that mean to immerse yourself in the Spirit's power? Well, God has given us many channels to access the Spirit's power. He's given us the Word. It's the main tributary. It's living. It's active. And through it, the mind of Christ fills you and directs you and controls you. He's given us the privilege of prayer to to find help in a time of need. He's given us the church where we go to receive mutual edification and exhortation. The question though is, are you pressing on? Are you actively and energetically pursuing him? Do you dive into the Bible, not just some book or some ritual, some reading checklist, but because you want to know the Lord, you want to pursue him. You want to be filled with, with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and understanding? Do you actively wrestle with God in prayer? You seek his will for your life and his his help in a time of need. Do you memorize scripture? You want to plant the word in your heart so that you're always battle ready. Are you engaged at church? You come, you're living out the one another. You don't just come, leave, casual attendee, but you're, you're truly living out the one another's in a fellowship so that as iron sharpens iron, you can, you can be sharpened and even sharpen others. Is that you? Would that all describe you? Or have you stalled out? Maybe your, your pursuit of Christ could best be described as lazy. You know, asleep at the wheel. If that's the case, at least recognize you're like a water wheel out of water. Just sitting there. You're stalled out. Maybe that's why, if that's you, you're you're not growing. Maybe that's why you're having such a hard time wrestling with sin. It's getting the best of you because you're not doing anything. You're malfunctioning. But you need to get back to work. You've been given new life. He put it in you. So work it out. Live it out. Pursue him. Do so with concentration. I find a couple of sub points here. First, you know, this response of pressing on. Pressing on requires the right concentration. And that's verses 13 and 14. He says, brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, he says, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on. Here we see the manner in which he presses on. He forgets what lies behind and he's reaching forward to what lies ahead. And together, these express the right concentration in running. There's a concentration here, which is what it takes to run a race well. Today, driving a car for you probably doesn't take a lot of concentration. At this point, if you've been driving for a while, you almost drive in your sleep. It's natural. But driving a race car would be a little different. Being a NASCAR driver, for example, requires complete concentration the whole time because this one wrong move could cost you the race or your life. 
So you, you can't take your mind off the race for a second. And so it goes for pursuing Christ. That, that's how it's supposed to be. You're not meant to be a Christian on autopilot. Constant concentration is called for. Negatively, this concentration means forgetting what lies behind. You see how he says that? Forgetting what lies behind. You know, speaking of professional race car drivers, they memorize the track they're racing on. And what's always on their mind is not the turn they just made, but the next turn coming up. As soon as they make a turn, they forget about it. They forget about what lies behind because it doesn't matter anymore. And even if they messed up a little bit, all that matters is, well, now I'm making the next turn. And likewise, in following Christ, what matters most now is the next turn, the next stage. Specifically, though, in the context, he's actually talking about forgetting past successes. Yeah, we don't want to get held up on past failures, obviously, but you know, primarily he has in mind forgetting your past successes, not relying too heavily on them. Remember the context, he's building a contrast with the legalists who are constantly relying on their past deeds, their past works, their past accomplishments. But no, we're in a progressive race seeking Christ. There's no room for resting on your past accomplishments. And picture a race car driver in a, a 500 lap race and he wins lap one. He records, in fact, the fastest time ever for lap one, which is, that's amazing. But just because he did well for lap one doesn't mean he can coast for the rest of the race. If he does that, he will lose by many miles. And after lap one is over, it's over. It's, it's time to put all of your concentration on the next 499 laps. There's a lot of race left. So what about you? Are you racing? Or are you coasting? There's some Christians who seem to greatly rely on their past successes as evidence of their Christ-likeness. They'll tell you stories about when they were young, when they had zeal for the Lord, they were on fire. They were like an evangelist. They went on missions trips. And that's all great, but like, what are they doing now? Are, are they coasting? Are, are you coasting? Praise God if you've had some good laps, but you're still in a race and you need to focus your concentration on what lies ahead. So first, forget what lies behind. Then verse 13, positively, he says, reach forward to what lies ahead. This verb for reaching pictures one stretching and straining every muscle to its limit. It's like two racers at the finish line, they're neck and neck, and they're like straining every muscle to be the first one across, almost like they're going to fall down. That should be the picture of you running your Christian race. There's a strain involved in reaching forward. This all takes intense concentration. Your eyes fixed not on what lies behind, but what lies ahead. And what does lie ahead is, is Christ himself. This brings us to the, the second sub point on the right response. The right response is to press on. It requires the right concentration. And secondly, it requires the right destination. You know, back to verse 12. He says, I press on he says, so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. And then again, verse 14, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. You know, any racer needs a goal. And that goal, it's not behind him, it's in front of him. And he or she is going to press on toward the goal. That's what drives them. Here in verse 14, this word for goal is literally in the ancient world, a, a signpost that they have fixed at the end of a racetrack and the runners in a sprint would fix their gaze on the signpost. It would be their target, you might say, to be running toward. For believers though, what, what's our goal? What, what is that thing that we're running after? Well, he says in verse 12, it's to lay hold of that for which we were laid hold of by Christ. Okay, why did Jesus lay hold of us. Well, as we know, is to bring us to him, to make us like him. We learned earlier, the goal is Christ-likeness, to be conformed to the image of his son. We were laid hold of for that reason, right? 
So now that, that becomes our goal to which we are pressing on after. This word pictures pursuing someone with the intent of overtaking them. It's, it's like we're, we're trying to catch up to Jesus. That his image might be fully conformed in us. So you press on toward the goal for the prize. There's a prize involved. What's the prize? In the ancient world, a victorious runner was summoned from the arena floor up to the judge's booth. This was the, the upward call, you might say. And he was awarded a prize, a wreath of leaves, which doesn't sound much today, but back then was a major status symbol he would wear as an icon of status. And it might be that Paul has this upward call in mind. We, we don't know for sure. But this pictures, though, our prize as Christians. He says, we press on for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. This upward call is the call of conversion and with it, the call to become like Christ. So you know what that means is for us as Christians, the goal and the prize are the same thing. That's not usually the case. Usually the runner reaches the goal to get some other more valuable prize. But for us, the goal and the prize are one and the same, namely Christ-likeness, being brought into his presence and fully conformed to his image. That's the goal, and that's the prize. That's all we're after here. And keep in mind, this is all still by God's grace. We're doing our part like he calls us to, but it's not like we're actually earning anything. Because like Paul said, we press on to lay hold of Christ only because what? He first laid hold of us. That he acted first. He saved us. He set us on this race. And we also press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call. It's still his call. If he didn't call us, we wouldn't even be runners. That's why this is still God's work, still to his glory. It's a work of his grace. And this is how we're able to take comfort knowing that even though we're not actually going to reach the goal, he'll still give us the prize at the end. He will award us the prize of Christ-likeness at the end as a gift. Don't forget another key verse, Philippians 1.6, where he says, I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. This truth gives us all the motivation we need to press on, that we have a glorious destiny ahead of us, a prize. It's given only to those who follow Christ And so press on. And so far we've covered number one, the right realization. And number two, the right response. You realize you haven't arrived. You're in a race. Race rather. (laughs) That'd be weird. You're in a race. And so the right response, you press on with the right concentration, the right destination. All that's left and we'll finish here. Number three, the right resolve. You need the right resolve. It's from verses 15 and 16. He goes on and says, Let us, therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude. And if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. However, let us keep living by that same standard to which we've attained. You know, so far throughout chapter 3, Paul's really been talking about himself. Very autobiographical. That's because his experience is normative. He's just recalling his salvation, his sanctification, but he knows that's that's really normative for any believer. It's just a pattern. But only here in verse 15 does he finally turn the tables back on the Philippians and and call them to engage in the race and, and by extension, us. It's not just his race. It's our race as well. And so this right realization and right response needs to be ours as well. And so this too must be our resolve. Verse 15, 16, this resolve, that that needs to be our resolve. He says, let us therefore, as many are perfect, have this attitude. The attitude of pressing on to pursue Christ needs to be your attitude. Is that your attitude? A quick side note, you might be wondering what he means when he says, as many as are perfect. Didn't you just spend a lot of time saying we're not perfect? So what does he mean? Well, this word for perfect, teleos, is often just translated as mature. And he could be saying as many as are mature have this attitude. But I think it's better to see this as a play on words. 
He's probably saying, as many of you who are positionally perfect, perfect in Christ, well, don't forget, you still need an attitude of pursuing Christ because we're not perfect in position. We still need to strive. But verse 15, he says, if any of you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. As you know, Paul himself was, was passionate for the Lord. He was pursuing Christ with a, a white-hot zeal. But he knew that his spiritual fervor was ultimately because of the grace of God. The only reason he was running so fast was God got a hold of him and energized him. And Paul knows not all have partaken of the same grace. And that's why he's compassionate with the stragglers, the, the slow runners. In humility, he recognizes God, God will be faithful to reveal to his children this, this right attitude of pursuing Christ. He will convict and work on his children and, and his timing and his plan. One man plants, another man waters. But God causes the growth. Is basically Paul entrusting your growth ultimately to God. But let this be your resolve. Let this be your attitude now. You know, some have the attitude that it's okay to follow Christ at a snail's pace. It's like, it's not, it's not like get too radical here. We don't want to break a sweat. There are times when it's okay not to break a sweat, like, like on your wedding day. You want to do everything possible to not break a sweat. You're going to be sweating enough later. Like, avoid that. Don't do work. But if you're a runner in a race and you're trying not to break a sweat, I'm pretty sure you're doing it wrong. If this is your attitude in running the race, well, just know, like he says, God will reveal to you the right attitude. If you're truly his child, God, God will help you. He will convict you. He will grow you. And just realize, though, it might come the hard way. In love, because God loves you, because he wants the greatest good for you. And that greatest good is to become like Christ. He's not going to tolerate a lazy runner for too long. God has means to convict you and spur you on. Sometimes through his word. Sometimes through his spirit. Sometimes through a sermon. But oftentimes through suffering or chastening. Every child that the Lord loves, he disciplines. And chariot drivers carried a whip for a reason. And horseback riders wear spurs for a reason. When the horse is not going fast enough, it's time for the spur. There's nothing like a little discipline to make someone run faster. God will grow you. You can be sure of that if you're truly his child. But recognize you should just have this right attitude from the beginning. That you resolve to press on with haste. So don't delay. And finally, he says in verse 16, however, let us keep living by this same standard to which we've attained. Keep living means to line up, to, to follow in line. He's saying, just stay on, stay on the path. Stay on the spiritual track here. Track runners get disqualified if they step out of their lane. So he's saying, you, you've followed Christ on the narrow path, the narrow lane, stay in line. Keep living in this way, don't deviate. This just reiterates for us the right resolve. You likewise need this resolve. I would say at the beginning of every day, repeat in your mind this resolve to follow Christ. You've been saved. You've been called, set apart to be conformed to his image. That's why you're still left on the planet. That is your purpose, to seek Christ. So let's keep living by that same standard to which we've attained. This is a resolve to consistency. Like Hebrews 12, we don't just have to run. We have to run with endurance the race that's set before us. You need the resolve daily to keep going and then to finish. So have you made this resolution? Have you settled and determined in your soul to pursue Christ with your life? Really think about that question. Have you settled and determined in your soul to live this life and pursue Christ. If not, like, why are you here? Why are you going to church? Why are you even a Christian? What are you doing? If you think being saved just means asking Jesus into your heart 20 years ago and then just living as you please, doing whatever you want, you are sadly deceived. But in salvation, we've learned Christ himself lays hold of us and then he puts us 
in a, a fierce race. We embark on this lifelong race of, of glorifying God and, and enjoying God and becoming like his son. We're not going to arrive, but his grace is sufficient. So first, you need to realize all this. Second, you need to respond by pressing on faithfully to the end. And then third, daily resolve to keep it up and make your heart's resolve every day to pursue Christ with your life. I'll leave you with Hebrews 12, 1 through 2, which says, Since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Let's pray. Lord and Savior Christ, we thank you for the work you've done on our behalf of coming to this world, dying on the cross, rising again. You did that to save wayward sinners. None of us were in a race. We all were running away from you, Lord, but by your grace, we thank you for calling, choosing, and justifying us, bringing us to yourself, giving us that upward call where you turned us around. You made us new. You you gave us a new spirit, a new heart that now loves you and, and loves Christ, the son, and loves to pursue him with life. We know that's why we're here. But Lord, we still have the flesh. Our bodies still want to go the other direction and with it, our our sinful desires. Help us, Lord, to to recognize what's going on in this life, why you've left us behind, how we are to glorify you with our bodies. Convict us of these truths that we would make the the right understanding, the realization in our hearts that we're, we're safe in Christ. We are saved. We are perfected, but there's still a work to be done. It's a work that glorifies you as we just put on Christ each and every day. And help us then to make the right response and to, to run. If any here are, are those, you might say, lazy Christians who have just been coasting, well, Lord, your grace is sufficient for them. You are gracious with all your children, but convict them now to turn it around, to, to turn it on, to get back to following you, to dive into your word and to prayer, draw near to the church and live out the Christian life you've, you've given us by your grace. Thank you for the great privilege we have being in Christ. And help us to resolve each and every day to just make much of him, to live for him, to enjoy him, tell others about him. Truly, it's the purpose of all of life. And so may we not lose sight of that each and every day. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.